well, Greg, I figure after a day like today, it's nice to just sit down and talk about something that's uh, that can be fun at times to talk about. And that's uh, a little bit of a compare contrast conversation about uh, the approaches of cannabis legalization. Uh, before we get begin, though, Greg, please uh, reintroduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinois podcast. Sure. And thank you, Cole. It's good to be here again. Uh, my name is Gregory Foster with Cannabis Observer. We're based in Olympia, Washington. And so we're looking forward to continuing the conversation about um, uh, not only distinctions between the Illinois and Washington marketplace, but more broadly across the country, as far as you know, what we're aware of, because it is uh, uh, a complex and interesting patchwork of different approaches that are all being tried at the same time. And they're all evolving and being evolved really quickly. So uh, uh, I try to approach all of that with some humbleness as far as the, the limits of my own knowledge. And I'm gonna be eager to, to hear more and learn more about the Illinois space. Yeah, well, so tell us where we can find uh, Cannabis Observer online, please. Uh, we're on the web at cannabis.observer and you can find us on social uh, at can observe c-a-n-n-o-b-s-e-r-v is our our handle on facebook instagram and twitter perfect well i uh i'll as always folks if you just look in the podcast description you can uh, find that information and just paste it into your browser click on it what have you um greg i think a first a place to start is is uh by by addressing something that I've said on this show in the past, and maybe maybe that's a good place to start. Um, in the past, I've used Washington and Oregon and Oklahoma, sometimes Colorado, occasionally Michigan, as examples of way that of ways or approaches in which I, I think maybe they've done it better. You know, uh, and that's in comparison to the way we've done it in Illinois, uh, which is to implement, you know, a medical cannabis program, extremely limited at first, then kind of open it up. And then one of the things we actually did that was pretty historic was uh, legalize the sale of adult use cannabis and possession via the legislative process versus I think the way that Washington, Oregon and Colorado did it uh, was voter initiative. Um, so, so just to complete my thought, cause I went up a little bit all over the place. Uh, I use those States as like, kind of, a, I contrast them against Illinois because there are a number, there's a significant number, uh, ha, sorry, I'm struggling to say this. There are more licensed cultivators, more licensed operators in the state of Illinois. And admittedly. We're only a couple of years in, I think at this point to adult use and there's been a pandemic. So I like, I'm trying to cut the state a little bit of slack with regard to that. But one of the things that I always complain about with our state is our licensing structure and the fact that it is so limited. We only have 21 operators in the state right now. And I think the last, the last figure I saw was that each dispensary is raking in a million dollars in cash. Uh, a month, you know, and uh, there's only 121, I think, of those. Uh, and so I want to 
I point out these numbers realizing that you guys are more well-established markets. In certain instances, you could say that. Like, I guess Michigan, they kind of legalize adult use around the same time as us. Um, so I'm conceding that the, the market is more mature. And so maybe that's, maybe that's why things are better there. Um, but what do you think? Let's just start here. What do you think about uh, comparing the states at all? I mean, is it even fair? Should I go there? Uh, or like, what do you kind of think about it? Is there a comparison? I know I just threw a few questions at you, so I'll try to let you just take one at a time. <laughs> sure. And all of those are, are, are good observations. Um, I think one thing that's helpful um, to, to, to keep in mind, and again, kind of on that, that humbleness theme, is that there's so much complexity with these different systems. And they're all starting from different spots and typically have all gone about things in different ways. So um, to take the example of Washington State, um, we actually um, uh, move forward with a, a medical kind of approach, um, decriminalization in, in 1998. And then we saw uh, nearly 15 years of a not really very directly regulated kind of gray market situation. And that's the, that's the basis that we started for our, the sort of starting point. However, in Washington state, the, um, the, the legalization voter initiative in 2012, same year as Colorado, um, took a different approach and didn't really uh, really much consider the existing medical dispensaries. And by that point, there were on the order of, um, I've heard some estimates of 1,200 to 1,300 uh, kind of vertically integrated uh, dispensary operations around the state. And whereas our voter initiative, uh, which we call I-502, um, wanted to have, uh, it did not include vertical integration. There's a strict separation between the wholesale and the retail tiers. And that was intentional because um, the initiative was modeled after um, uh, the approaches taken after the end of alcohol prohibition and where they didn't want there to be uh, kind of a, uh, there was a fear of, of some sort of cartel-like structure um, uh, the cartels emerging of some sort or another. And that's been an interesting decision because it really kind of ostracized the entire medical marketplace, made them competitors in some sense. And, uh, um, and, and we've sort of lived with that ever since. Um, oh, well, I guess I can take that back. It was a few years later that an attempt was made to sort of fold that in to the system, the existing adult use system. The, the medical marketplace and then to sort of ban that process. And as a result, really Washington state doesn't have a medical system. Um, it's not a separate system. It's all within the adult use space. So again, like that's just one example telling a little bit of the historical background um, to, to frame things and say like, it's, it's not always easy to necessarily compare the apples and oranges approaches However, you can also cut that a different way and say, okay, well, what about the licensing process itself? Yeah. Um, 
And what was the approach taken there? Because we've seen a lot of different approaches to, to licensing across the states. Um, I, think, I think we can maybe start at one extreme and say, all right, maybe on one end is more free market, like a, sort of like Wild West, every, anybody who wants to get licensed can go for it. And yep. um, you know, good old illusory uh, American competition can prevail. And uh, maybe we'll see, say like Oklahoma is uh, over on that end of the spectrum. I think everyone yeah. tends to agree. Um, and from what I've heard, that's a, a very interesting jurisdiction as a result. Uh, but also probably a lot of people are struggling and probably a lot of people are losing their shirts and their life savings and all kinds of things. Um, and then maybe at the other end, the other extreme would be a very uh, tightly controlled um, licensing process where there's a, a very limited number of licenses that are made available. And I think we see that happening more um, on the, the East Coast, I would say. And um, I would think that Illinois would probably be maybe leaning over in that direction. I'm not really sure. With Washington State, um, we took the approach of um, uh, trying to come up with some sort of number, of, uh, especially on the retail side. I think we see it more often on the retail side where it's... Um, uh, you get a, a more strictly limited number. And so here, um, the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board, it's the primary regulatory authority in the state for adult use cannabis. Um, they commissioned a study with a group called Botec, B-O-T-E-C, that was a lot more prominent, I think, in previous years, um, as far as looked to as a... a, a, a a consultancy that uh, could be doing performing research as far as the, the setup and structure of, of different regimes. And so they were tasked with coming up with a number, like how many retail establishments should we have? And so they considered things like the, the population of the state. Um, they looked, things, looked at things down at uh, the county level and municipalities and recommended an approach or kind of formula um, whereby you could say, okay, well, we need to have this many retail outlets in King County and this many in Seattle and this many in uh, uh, for different jurisdictions around the state. And so the, the numbers they came up with, uh, the agency went with, um, and then they opened up a 30-day application window initially. And my understanding is that they received on the order of 2,000 applications for on the order of 330 uh, initial retail outlets. And then they received on the order of 5,000 applications for the wholesale side of things. Um, which came down to um, around, you know, on the order of closer to 2,000 total licenses there. Um, and so they had to do something to either prioritize those applications or 
come up with some way of making that work. And initially we decided to do a blind lottery. Um, and it was luck of the draw for whoever got um, a license from those groups after they did a lot of effort sort of whittling down the, uh, the total number of applications that were regarded as valid. And those processes are uh, whenever you see agencies taking on processes like that, you should be very, um, give it a lot of scrutiny because um, that's, well, there's been a lot of allegations that we've heard over the years that those processes may not have been uh, very fair or equitably um, undertaken. And, uh, and maybe that's a good segue then too, also to, to talk about that equity dimension. Yeah. And before, before you do that though, I, I just wanted yeah. to see, just to insert some topical humor, if you will. Um, did you see what Rhode Island regulators did for their blindfolded lottery? I did not. Let's see if I can show you this here. This is a man. Uh, I don't know if I can. Sorry, this is my way of showing you. Uh, if folks look it up on the uh, Chillinois podcast Instagram, there's a man standing with a blindfold. It's uh, literally re- blindfolded. Literally blindfolded, reaching into a uh, bin with balls in it. And it says, Rhode Island regulators are conducting a blindfolded lottery for the medical cannabis business licenses using numbered balls weighed by university scientists stored in a vault since April in a case sealed with evidence tape from the state bomb squad. Alrighty there. Seems like a lot of theater going on. But like you say, even then, uh, be very, you know, be diligent and, and track it. So, so yes, uh, I think... A good segue to social equity um, is definitely this idea of, so first of all, just to repace where we've been, you talked about there's like a spectrum, right? And you, you got one side of the spectrum, fully open market, no holds barred. Uh, Oklahoma, I agree, is a great example because right now, uh, from what I understand, I could go on their website, pay a $2,500 fee, and by the end of the night, I got a cannabis license in my hands, right? Um versus Illinois, where frankly, a lot of people want the licenses and they can't get them. So in other words, you couldn't get a license even if you fucking wanted to. (laughs) Um, So, you know, you got to pay a lot of money in other words. Um, So there's like, I actually agree though, that you, it's safe to say that Illinois might be leaning in that direction, uh, that that it might be more accurate to say that some States like, uh, I don't know, New Jersey, Ohio, Maybe even Florida, it's 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 fair to say that it, that they have some strict elements. I, the reason I bring out Florida is because I do believe they have a limited number of operators. But not only that, they have a very interesting requirement that I think you mentioned came into play in Washington, which is that you have to be vertically integrated in order to operate in the state, which is, of course, unsustainable. And another great uh, segue to social equity Um you know, limits like that, not only license limits, but unnecessarily unnecessary regulatory burdens like that. I, sorry, I don't mean to fork this conversation because those are almost two topics, but how do we attain social equity given this spectrum and with this spectrum in mind, I guess? Sure, sure. And I think you also raise a, uh, an important dimension there, which is the cost associated 
um, with standing up these businesses or even just applying. Um, yeah. So in. Um, That's my in th- some- really quick. I don't want to cut you off, but it, it's crazy. Like the cost of applying is so much, let alone the cost of just operating the business, like just business costs. Those are through the roof. And you know that getting into the industry or you should at least, but like the license just to apply costs a lot of money. You know, anyways, I felt like I cut you off. Oh, no worries. What, what are those costs like in Illinois? Well, in Illinois, uh, the cult, the craft cultivation licenses and the dispensary licenses are a bit different. I think if you were a social equity candidate, the license was between $2,500 and $5,000, but that's, that's for one application. That's not for the license. Right. And the, the one thing that came into play with Illinois, the Illinois social equity, and I don't mean to jump ahead of the conversation we're about to get into, but it was a lottery, right? A, a lottery where these social equity points would give you or these social, these conditions would give you more points. In other words, bringing your, application to the top and therefore um, putting it in a pool that it would be chosen out of. But there was no limits on how many applications you could uh, uh, submit. So uh, somebody could apply. And this is another thing that came up. Um, you know, our definite a definition of social equity also included just hiring, having people that are on your payroll that fit that definition. And a lot of people have called that the slave master clause, and there ended up being a uh, uh, a lottery just to kind of address some of the cons- to, to I guess attempt to address some of the concerns around that. Um, I I feel like I went all over the place though. It's like twenty five to five thousand dollars for the dispensary license. I can't remember the craft cultivation license, but let me put it back to the original licenses. How about that? One hundred twenty five thousand dollar non refundable fee yearly fees of like a hundred, some hundred thousand dollars yearly fees. I mean, these are that's and, for and, the renewal, the annual renewal fees on, on that order. Yes. And, and the, the big kicker here is that there's not really any plans to issue any more licenses like that. Like those licenses can operate with, I think, I think the largest facility in Illinois has like 300 or 200,000 square feet of canopy space. Meanwhile, the craft cultivators are limited for starts 5,000 feet of canopy space, which isn't even comparable to 200,000, right? Um, but the max that the the Department of Ag can increase, like they can actually go through a process of getting their flowering space increased, but the maximum they can increase it to is 15,000, which is still not comparable. They also can only sell it at the adult use tax rate, which means that medical cannabis patients, if they were looking to get like cheaper price craft product, well, they're going to have to buy it from the adult use side, which is, I mean, that's a kind of a different conversation, but, um, you know, it is interesting that, uh, you mentioned that you no longer have really a distinction between adult use and medical. Meanwhile, we do have the distinction, but we're almost like fate. I really feel like there's just a silent phase out of the program because there's not really any plans to open up any new dispensaries. I, I have always mentioned there are five more dispensaries that will open, but they will be um, they will actually be going to social equity candidates. You know, it's funny though, because it's a medical cannabis dispensary, they will be unable to stock social equity products. So it'll be a social equity dispensary. They can only sell the multi-state operator 
product. It's kind of an interesting thing. But again, I went all over the place. Your question to me was, uh, what do the licenses cost? And if it's, if it's uh, uh, prohibitive, and I think, yes, I think they are cost prohibitive. Yeah, there's, it's, uh, uh, and this is all so helpful to, to hear more of the, the background and story, but I think we're, we're sussing out, uh, there are all these different dimensions, all of these different criteria that go into um, being able to compare different jurisdictions and try to figure out like, well, are we, could we be doing this in a different way? And, yeah. and so just to provide some, some perspective from, from Washington, as far as the licensure costs, um, the application fees are, you know, in the order of hundreds of dollars and the annual renewal um, fee is, I believe, $1,381 for um, producer, processor, or retail, or transporter, or research licenses uh, that we have here. Um, and so there's not that kind of, um, you know, kind of astronomical um, uh, cost um, on an annual basis just to, to operate uh, or just to have your license from the state that says that you can operate. Uh, I think Washington is actually, my understanding is that they may have the lowest fees um, amongst different states. And, and uh, so, there's that dimension of stuff. Um, there's also often, I think you've even seen it in Illinois that you'll have multiple application windows. Um, uh, and we've had that here as well. Um, when we folded in the medical marketplace an additional uh, around 220 retail licenses were opened up. So, you know, we're, we're getting in the order of about 500 or 600 um, retail outlets in the state. And, but that's also to serve a larger population than um, what you have in Illinois. So we're at 7.7 million in Washington state. And I believe in Illinois art, is that about 3.8 or something that numbers uh, come into mind? Um, It's it's significant, significantly lower, but it still seems like, right. Like we've got We've got on the order of somewhere about 600 retail and about 1,400 producer processor uh, licenses that are in play. Although I think the number that are operational is uh, much less. And uh, uh, there's quite a few licenses that are dormant or being held for speculative purposes um, in the long run. Um, so, uh, so, you know, you, you have to keep that dimension in mind too, as far as like how big your, uh, like we're all still uh, confined to the state borders at this point. Um, and uh, um, so that dimension of the total population that you're trying to address is is super important too in comparing and, and trying to figure out like, well, why were, why are decisions being made one way or another or what might be a better approach. Um, so to to wrap it back around to the social equity piece, because I think that's very important. Um, and uh, you know, just to provide my where I come from around all of that, um, the you know my north star with all of this stuff is the plant, and 
I figure we have been as a species working with cannabis for well over the tens of thousands of years that we have documented evidence of doing so. And in the grand scheme of things, prohibition, while extremely uh, unfortunate for the last 80 years, um, is a comparative blip. And my work and what I try to do is guided by that intent to get humanity back in right relationship with the plant and to address the harms of the drug wars and the permanent harms that have been done to disproportionately to communities of color. Um, and sadly in Washington state, when we were forming our um, citizens initiative, you know, this was we were the first state, uh, Washington, Colorado were the first states to, um, to get those initiatives passed. And um, Washington state in particular took an approach of being pretty fearful of uh, federal retribution um, things, you know, being the first to step out there, you're really not sure what to expect from the feds around all of that piece. And so Washington took an approach that was more conservative than most, uh, than really, I think probably any other state has taken and subsequently. Um, yeah, it's and- weird because not to cut you off, but it didn't Washington announce with Colorado, but then it like, it's all you ever heard about was Colorado. Oh yeah, because Colorado was much faster to implement. Yeah, um, I think that they were uh, they opened up their first retail establishments in 2013. So um, I, less than a year afterwards, whereas Washington didn't get their act together until early 2014. Oh, wow. And and I think that's also because Washington, deservedly so, from that time was regarded as the the stricter um, regulatory environment. Um, And and Colorado really seems to have navigated things more smoothly. Um, And I think that that persists to this day. Washington is regarded in a lot of ways as as a tough environment. Um, Although I think think that perception may may not be entirely entirely justified um and and certainly i think in the last few years we've seen um quite a bit of evolution um in that in the regulatory and the legal space um so all of that to to say that neither colorado nor washington state nor alaska nor oregon after that um contemplated including social equity components in their legalization initiatives. Um, It was only subsequent to that, that states began uh, uh, incorporating that into their initiatives and into their their legislative uh, legalization proposals. And so in Washington state, there's been recognition that that's going on and for the last several years, um, the legislators established a, a, a social equity and cannabis task force that uh, uh, brought together a pretty diverse group of, of stakeholders to, um, uh, to figure out, well, what can we do to, to address those harms now? And, 
And so that's been very interesting. We've followed that task force from its inception, um, all of the multiple different work groups that have gotten together on that piece to put forward recommendations to shift the structure of the marketplace and to, um, in some ways, kind of retroactively uh, make room and make space uh, for social equity applicants to um, to uh, to participate in the marketplace. Because uh, unfortunately, what we've seen um, is that those disproportionate um, um, uh, those disproportionate impacts have have manifested again in terms of uh, ownership um, of licenses within the Washington state space um, that don't necessarily map to say like population demographics. Um, and I, I think it's a, it's a common refrain by this point that it's typically white men who are the owners uh, and the, the prime beneficiaries of, um, of the, the successes that are often sadly overblown as far as how difficult it is within the space. But um, so that's been going on here. Um, and, and that's an interesting piece. Uh, whereas within Illinois, my understanding is that, um, and, and in other states like New York, uh, the, uh, the social equity piece is there from the beginning and the social equity piece is, is significant. So can you tell me more about the, the story there as far as um, how that was structured in, in Illinois? Well, I'll do my best. One thing, though, I think that's important to include, and it's like you say, it goes into the nuance of this conversation. Uh, it really, really gets into the nuance of this conversation, actually, is that uh, when we started tossing around the idea of adult use cannabis, uh, we only had 21 operators and I think uh, 60 medical cannabis dispensaries, if that. Um, so it's important to put that into perspective. And uh, the point I try to make with that is that we, we had very limited licenses, uh, a limited number of licenses. And I don't really know why. Uh, especially back then, because um, there wasn't a conversation about social equity. Um, in fact, I think it was a very closed door meeting <laughs> among lobbyists that that made it happen, you know. And it was a very limited program at the time. And I believe Governor Pat Quinn at the time signed it into law. Um, but but the way we've evolved is to and towards adult use. This idea has come around, and I think it's agreeable. The idea that uh, we right the wrongs of history and and put a focus towards uh, making space for those who have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, right? It's pretty, it's, I think it's an agreeable thing to set out for. Uh, just to put that in another way, these folks have provided what some people call the black market. I prefer to call it the legacy market. Uh, these folks have, have, floated it for all these years you know these, these are the folks that made it so why shouldn't they get an opportunity at participating in the very industry that frankly they already do participate in it's just they're not, they're not licensed and so that's a long way of saying that jb pritzker our current governor campaigned heavily on the idea that he would legalize cannabis and as part of that he would 
basically cut a piece of the pie. And I hope that doesn't sound crass for um, social equity candidates. In other words, what I, cause I feel like that sounded crass. What I mean to say is that one of his legislative focuses seemed to not only be that we were going to end the war on drugs, which by the way, that people are still getting arrested for cannabis possession in our state. We just had a defense attorney on to talk about it. Folks, if you haven't listened to the episode, check it out. It's with Evan Bruno. He's been on twice, but we, we came on again to talk about more things that have been going on. Anyways, though, one, to legalize cannabis to end the war on drugs. We didn't do that. Um, <laughs> two, to give people a chance in the industry, right? It was kind of a really, it was a great pitch in my opinion. I think everybody could agree with it. But I, I don't know, maybe it's the way, maybe we're, maybe what I'm fretting about is the way that this, the way that we get from point A to point B. But from my understanding, their approach has been to limit the number of licenses. And this is me inserting my opinion. The, the, the idea or the, the value of limiting licenses is frankly, it increases the value of the license of the license. Right. And I like that idea with regard to how are you going to right the wrongs of social equity other than to, to like, you know, fucking give some value to, to the license. I actually, I like that idea, but frankly, in politics, that's not how it plays out. If, if you're inflating the value of something, if you're giving something more value, guess what? That's more money at stake. Right. And so what we, what we found out and what we've seen through reporting and it's still coming out to this day, but it's, it was a pretty interesting process. Um, the, the scoring process, there's been inaccuracies. I mean, the dispensary process is still held up in court. Uh, the craft license, the craft cultivation licenses have been issued, at least the first 40. Um, I think the the rest are, are going to continue. The last I heard, some more deficiency notices have gone out uh, uh, for that. So they're working like through any, trying to correct anything with their application, whatever. Um, but I don't, I feel like I went all over the place again, Greg, you got me on a, uh, after a long day. Um, but I, I hope I answered your question in saying that the way that we got here and my, and I inserted some opinion admittedly is that we had this idea that we were going to right the wrongs of the drug war. And we came up with this limited licensing structure. And here's my take on it. And this is kind of the core of why I brought you back on here. Last time, I think I mistakenly uh, referenced a Vice clip. Last time I had you on, I, it was mostly a conversation between you and Justine, but you started talking about things that really were, I was, I, I couldn't help myself. I had to like ask you about it because you seemed to be knowledgeable and I wanted to hear what you thought. And I think I mistakenly referenced a Vice clip and I think I mistakenly said it was with the Washington Liquor Control Commissioner, but it was actually with the Oregon liquor cannabis control commissioner or whatever the hell the department is and he said he was asked because vice did a, a piece on their state and it said this is what happens when you sell too much weed and the mark the the operators basically that a lot of operators have a lot of issues and it's a race to the bottom and they went through all that but then they asked him the, the you know the regulator what his opinion was on it and folks that have heard me say this multiple times i'm sorry but this is like this is like the core of what I'm trying to figure out. He was asked, would you do it again? And he said, first of all, my opinion doesn't really matter, but since you're asking my opinion, I'll give it to you. 
because his his opinion doesn't matter. His job is to enforce the law, right? But if you're asking, he said, if you're asking my opinion, my opinion was that yes, we went fast and loose. Yes, people got hurt. But what have I would I have done it differently? I don't know because other approaches include limitations, and what limitations mean is that somebody doesn't get an opportunity. And while this may not have gone the way that people wanted it to go, people knew or should have known what they were getting into. And just to wrap up my idea here, somebody said it to me once, and it was just an intriguing idea. They said, and it's hard. Again, there's so much to this conversation, but they said, if maybe if we would have taken a similar approach to some of these other states that we would see people of color operating in the state today because currently frankly we don't there are only i'm pretty positive there our friend from cannabis legalization news made a graphic and it's this face of white people i think there might be one that's a little tan but i don't think he's technically a person of color i think he's just tan i think it's legitimately just white people that own licenses and Illinois. Actually, I take that back. I think there might be one dispensary that's owned by a person of, of color, but I digress. Um, the point is it's mostly white. And I, I wonder, I really wonder if it would be different if we didn't have these limits that have caught us up in these court cases and everything else, you know? Sorry, I said a lot again. That's great. Um, and, and you did say a lot. Um, and let's just let's just go back to Oregon for a second because it's sure. a good example. Now, and that was that was Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission uh, Commissioner Steve Marks. He's the executive director over there. Um, well, I I just we just published a, a an, an observation today where he was on a panel that uh, oh. that we were speaking to, um, and so. Oregon is an interesting one and really uh, all the West coast states are interesting because of the legacy markets and because the West coast states have supplied the cannabis for the entire country to a great degree for decades throughout prohibition. And so again, like, it's, it's not exactly comparable for us to, to look at, at that dimension as well. But that kind of, that, uh, the supposition of saying, okay, well, they went fast and loose and they already had a lot of, um, a, a lot of growers who are already in operation, who they were going to try to coax into the regulated marketplaces, um, one thing for us to remember then is that each of these state regulated marketplaces, there's only so much cannabis that your populations can smoke or can vape or can dab or whatever. And there's only so much adult use and medical cannabis that each of these individual states needs. That's all going to change whenever we get either national legalization of some sort or another, something that allows interstate commerce. There's some interesting approaches we could maybe do before then. And then you've got the ability to export. And Oregon 
or Oklahoma or Washington or California, these are going to be your net exporter states. Um, and that's going to change the whole situation dramatically. But for right now, all of these states are implementing canopy limits of one form or another within the adult use space. It's interesting that you're talking about the craft licenses in Illinois, where you can go from 5,000 to 15,000 square feet. That's, I mean, yeah. it's a lot of, it's a lot of cannabis for like from a single person's perspective, but it's nothing compared to like you were saying, there's some with 300,000 square feet. How yeah. do you, how do you compete? Like you, you don't compete, right? Like that's, you've, you've already structured a situation where the economies of scale are, are not, they're not the same. Um, that may result in a different diversified products match, or it may result in a bunch of people going out of business or having their licenses acquired and incorporated elsewhere. Um, here in Washington, just to, to provide that comparative piece, we've got three different levels of uh, producer licenses. You've got tier one, which is um, uh, 4,000 square feet, tier two is 10,000, tier three is 30,000. And on the wholesale side, you can own up to three licenses. So maximum is 90,000 uh, square feet for three tier threes. Um, go look down in California, uh, local jurisdictions open that up and you've got huge, like millions of square feet. Uh, and that's over on the adult use side. But as we all, I think everyone listening here knows, hemp is also cannabis. In fact, the idea of marijuana and hemp are just legal fictions. Yeah, thank you. And somebody, which no one really seems to know, who came up with the 0.3% THC yeah. by a dry weight number. Uh, seems to be have been made up totally arbitrary and has no relationship to the plant. But over on that hemp side where you have federally recognized agricultural commodity, there is no canopy limit. And so now as probably all of your listeners know, also you have a glut of CBD that has been extracted from hemp cultivars which has created a situation where farmers don't know what to do to get rid of that. But then you have chemists step in and say, oh, you know, actually with a fairly simple process with some highly uh, uh, reactive acids and chemicals, we can convert that CBD into Delta-8 and Delta-9 and Delta-10. And then your notion of an adult use canopy limit becomes kind of, uh, well, it's challenged a little yeah. bit. So we're at a real interesting moment just uh, with regards to this story of prohibition and how, especially in states where prohibition is the rule still, um, and you see the proliferation of, of Delta-8 products um, that are not remotely as expensive to produce as it is within adult use marketplaces where you have all of these regulations, you have 
testing requirements, you have packaging and labeling requirements, you have uh, restrictions where you can't use branding that's appealing to children. Then you go across the border and, um, or even within the states where you do have adult use marketplaces, you can still go to a gas station or somewhere and, and buy these products for a lot cheaper because they're not going to have that huge excise tax or whatever the, the potency tax that you might have there in, in Illinois on it. And uh, well, how does that, how is that going to play out, right? Um, again, and I think we mentioned this last time too, it just makes me wonder about that 2018 farm bill, which seems to have opened the door for all of this to happen. And um, just makes me wonder whether Senate leader Mitch McConnell at that time may have known exactly what he was doing and setting up a divide and conquer situation and pitting hemp farmers against marijuana farmers. There's a certain amount of uh, negligence to the, to the statements that he made. And I just, I, I don't want to, let's just keep it at this one. I think uh, it's, it's the best one because it embodies what you just said. He said something to the effect while he was holding a hemp made pen. He said, I'm okay with hemp. I'm not okay with hemp's illicit cousin. And, and what he's trying to say is that he's not okay with cannabis when there's no fucking difference. Like I, it, the craziest way, if people really don't understand, you just explain the difference. It's, you know, but if it's over 0.03% THC in the plant tissue, then it's considered cannabis. If it's, if it's under that, it's, it's considered hemp. It's just crazy to think that like, to put it another way for people that still don't get it, uh, like you could plant a field of seeds sold as, as hemp, but if somebody came by and it tested at 0.04%, they would tell you, no, sir, this is cannabis and you need to destroy it now. This is, this is illegal. And it's like, but wait a minute. It, it, like, think about that. That doesn't happen with any other crop. You never plant tomatoes and somebody comes by and they're like, sir, these, these tomatoes are illegal because they are too damn good. You know, like it just. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And um, I, I, I'll just, just add there, um, you know, there are uh, the USDA is responsible for, for setting up the hemp program at the federal level and for approving the state level hemp programs. And um, uh, they've just gone through you know, years of rulemaking and it is possible to, um, uh, to, to do some, some remediative efforts on, uh, on hemp that tests hot, uh, so to speak. Um, and they do have kind of some sampling requirements, but it's like no, nowhere close to the degree of um, uh, kind of testing that you have to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, you're testing entire fields, um, with, uh, uh, pretty strange individual samples and, um, the seed, the seed, the hemp seeds that are out there right now. And, and everybody, I think who has grown plants is going to know this, that, um, getting consistency from seed like that is, it's not what you see in practice and one plant right next to another plant, same environmental conditions, same batch of seed. One's, one might test hot, the other might not. The one, one might have like five or 6% DHC within it, the other would be well below that 0.3 level. And uh, 
it's just that's a that's part of the plant that's part of the the uh, the the diversity of the plant and it's uh the way that it expresses itself and you you see those variations within the same plant where um uh, at, towards the, the top of the plant where it's getting more sun um uh you're going to see higher levels of of cannabinoids in general uh anyways i, I digress myself here so it's all good it's all good maybe to to get us back uh i i just want to this is the thought that I have come up because we are I like, I hear what you're saying and I've heard other people say it. And I think there's, I don't, I don't like, I want to make sure to acknowledge that it's a valid point that with a fast and loose approach. And I want to be clear by fast and loose. I still think there should, because some people have questioned me on this. They're like, you don't think there should be any testing. And it's like, no, 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 there should still be consumer safety standards. There should still be third-party testing labs People shouldn't be able to shop for labs, which is still a problem that happens in a lot of states from what I hear. Um, you know, there should be there should be some structure. And I even think that fast and loose is a little bit too broad of a brush because I agree with some of the things that Washington has and some other states have where it's like you can get a license. There's no there's no walls in the way but you can only have three of a certain category, right? Like I'm okay with limitations like that. I want to get that out there, but I want to ask, and this is a tough question to ask because I work with a lot of these people and I realize it's people's livelihoods, but sometimes it seems like the argument against fast and loose with the structure mechanisms that I'm talking about is that People, it'll be a race to the bottom and people will be financially hurt by it. And I'm not trying to say that that's not a real thing, but again, it's like back to what the, the guy from Oregon said, like if it's, if you have it structured like that and everybody knows what the game is and I realize life isn't a, a evil, even playing field. Cause so I'm uh, open to building in mechanisms to address social equity, which we can get back to that. But like, it's just the idea, like, should people be able to make like it seems like that i want to ask my question so that you can answer it because i go all over the place i've been going all over the place this episode it seems like the argument against fast and loose is that people will lose money the question is should people be able to profit hand over fist for cannabis like should it just be a common commodity like tomatoes and corn where I know people do profit off of it, but like, come on, people aren't like, you know, so what do you think? Well, um, I do think that one of the outcomes that you can pretty predictably see whenever you have um, uh, a lot of producers um, <clears throat> is that you're going to have competition on price and yeah. Um, you can see it happen um, if you go back and you look at the data um, of states um, over the years, um, you will see that expectations and prices start off high and then it's going to go down yeah. and it's going to like go down for multiple years typically until there is a... Um, <laughs> Consolidation. Uh, well, um, <laughs> uh, I, I think 
I, I'm just I'm chuckling because I was thinking of a, a joke I heard recently um, about about farmers who are uh, you can you can count on farmers to to be able to suppress the price on their own commodity in some sense by <laughs> by overproducing and yeah. uh, competing with one another in that regard. And uh, you know it's a it's it's a chuckling sort of thing, but it's it's not when you think about the fact that farmers everywhere family farms everywhere regardless of the, what they're growing have suffered over the last decades um and i think we all should be very mindful of um the fact that pretty much every business um you know with the exception maybe of some of these multi-state operators most cannabis businesses are small businesses most of them are not a lot of employees not a lot of revenue and cash flow um, most people who are in this space um, have experience putting their own money on the line because you're not going to get traditional banks loans and things like that for all of the problems in the financial sector and now they keep an arm's distance from it all for years um, and you've got people who wear lots of different hats, just depending on what the crisis of the day is. Um, so I think we have to have a lot of understanding and sympathy and compassion for, for everyone who's operating in this space and who's taking those risks and who are following their dreams and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but we've got to, we've got to figure out a way to let people pursue those dreams who want to and not exclude people. Um, but it does take capital. It does take money, especially if you're going to be doing stuff on the retail side. Um, I think on the wholesale side, there's more, um, the, the costs are not as high to get started and to operate. Um, you don't necessarily have to have as many employees as you do on the retail side. I think the 280E implications are stronger or more hard felt on the retail side. Um, than they are on the wholesale side. Um, so, um, but um, the new states that are coming online, they need to be learning from their peers. They need to be learning from what's been tried before. They need to look at the particular circumstances of their jurisdiction, the history in their jurisdiction, what the legacy markets look like in their jurisdiction, um, what the impacts of the war on drugs have been um, and, you know, just to kind of circle it back around to what you were saying, as far as the, the drug wars, um, still ongoing in all of these jurisdictions, right? Like we're, we're in, a, a phase of, uh, what a, a colleague of mine calls post-prohibition where you've got prohibition along with regulated markets. Um, and you have pressures and sometimes from the cannabis sector to, to suppress legacy markets, to continue doing so, to eliminate competition in some regards. Um, that is a piece that I think that we as a culture still have not really wrestled with and dealt with. The fact that people are still getting arrested, the fact that people who... Uh, who were convicted and who are in jail today to this day for doing something which 
now is completely legal in many of these jurisdictions is simply wrong. It's not right that people are still in jail for misdemeanor cannabis possession offenses or that sort of thing, felony cannabis possession offenses. I'm not, not in any way um, condoning or accepting violence that's often accompanied with these, uh, these situations. But the fact of the matter is that you look at the data, um, the data says that the drug war is racist from its inception and get go and it still is today in a lot of places and i think we still need to fix that we need to address that and uh i think we're a long ways from it still yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's something that most people aren't keenly aware of that the arrests continue it's something really it's really peculiar in illinois because they're getting people for uh, what they're calling improper transport of cannabis. And the way they're getting them for that is because the law says that for cannabis to, to transport cannabis, it must be an inaccessible part of the vehicle, which I think is agreeable. Uh, there's certain arguments that it's frankly impossible in some vehicles, like a pickup truck, for example, like what do I need to put it in the bed of my truck or in the, in the, the, you know the thing the box in the back or whatever and i guess if that's the answer that's fine but the point in that is that there's not really anywhere in the cabin that's not quote accessible uh by the driver um the the, the thing though they're getting people on is uh there's language in there that says that the container must be odor proof which frankly is impossible uh there's not a container that is odor proof if you go to the dispensary, it smells like weed because they're not sold in odor-proof containers. They're not housed in odor-proof containers because odor-proof containers don't exist. I always say, you know, folks, you can Google odor-proof containers and you'll find results. But a canine, which is what they use to determine whether or not it's odor-proof, uh, can smell through just about anything. And uh if you don't believe me, just ask the cartel because it's a very, uh, and I say that flippantly, ask anybody that that is in organized crime if you happen to know them. Because uh, the reason I'm saying that is because canines are still a very real concern. There's like there's no way around it. Canines can smell just about anything. Like it's it's tough to outsmart a canine's nose. So it's it's unfair, frankly. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to say too that I I acknowledge the the potentially scary outcomes of what I'm proposing uh, could be. And one of the things that I think is very real is the idea that if you go to an, a gas if you go to a gas station right now, Greg, my friend, and if I go to a gas station right now, I'll bet you that most of the things that are at your gas station and my gas station are fucking the same. You're going to see some Coca-Cola, some Sprite, some Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew, Miller Lite, Bush Lite, Starbursts, D Doritos. Like you've heard of all these things, right? I'm not speaking Spanish or I'm not speaking another language. You've heard of these things, right? Oh, yeah. So the point is I'm aware and I'm scared of actually the idea of opening it up, race to the bottom, and then a consortium into these six conglomerate companies which you know that we've seen that play out in the media we've seen it playing at play out in our food supply and 
look, I'm not going to like beat around the bush and say that fast and loose. That's why I wanted to quantify and say like maybe three license limit, you know, things like that still testing because I don't want something like that to happen in this industry. I don't want that consolidation. And I don't, because I do think that that ultimately will make it so that social equity is unattainable. If there's Walmart and Amazon and fucking Google growing weed, like, yeah, good luck competing. Right. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It's like, where, where is that in the middle? And that's kind of what I've I've been trying to figure out and and that's I, I'm so glad too that you were willing to come on. And like you say, it's so tough as you it, we're we're almost it's a little bit too early to have this conversation because we're we're seeing these things play out with a total different set of variables. You know what I mean? So it's not like we're having these independent studies that we can compare and contrast evenly and cleanly because we've reached these points through and so many different things have happened. Like, you know, I go through the intricacies of my market and you're like, wow, I'm learning a lot right now. And then you go through the intricacies of yours. I've never heard of some of these things. And so, and even in in that it's, it's like, you can't, it's, it it literally is apples to oranges. It's not comparing similar things. So. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you remind me of, uh, 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 a kind of a theme that's been coming up for me lately around that question about well, what happens if we are able to move towards federal legalization, which, you know, uh, Schumer and Booker and Wyden got everybody excited about the possibility that maybe we would see that during the Biden administration, but I am not holding my breath at all for that to happen. I don't think we'll see it within this administration personally. Um, and so that's gotten me thinking, well, maybe there's another approach that we could take. So in 2012, after the initiatives passed in Washington, Colorado, uh, there was outreach to the Department of Justice to say, okay, what can we do to ensure that you guys aren't going to come arrest us? And the result was the Cole Memorandum that said, okay, well, here's our enforcement priorities around this. We're not going to come and arrest you if you take care of these particular things, right? So in, I think it was two years ago now, Oregon passed a bill, 582, which positioned them to be ready if there is national legalization to be able to say, okay, we're in the starting blocks. We're ready to go to export as soon as we get that signal. And it's like, wow, that's really forward thinking and um, really good that you positioned yourselves to, to be ready for that. And like other states sort of took notice. What I didn't know is that there's a provision, I think, in that bill where it's not just that if you have national federal legalization, but if you have some other signal, like say a new kind of Cole Memorandum-esque thing from the Department of Justice that says that we're not going to sit your uh, U.S. prosecuting or U.S. attorneys for each of these districts. We're not going to send them after you if you say do uh, state-to-state compacts for interstate commerce. Um, And so that idea of a more gradual kind of state-to-state compact relationship like contract between the states 
I think is a, an interesting thing worth pursuing. And um, there's been some some efforts to uh, here on the West Coast to to get our governors to uh, kind of come together and go ask the Department of Justice and say, well, you know, would you be willing to um, to put together something like this that says here are the conditions under which we would allow interstate trade to occur um, in particular jurisdictions. Um, and I think that would give us, um, you know, I don't know how much use it would be to have Washington and Oregon to net exporter states to trade with one another. Um, and, and we're kind of screwed over here because Idaho is right next door and they're never gonna, <laughs> probably they'll be the last state to uh, join us outside of the dark ages. And, uh, but um, I think if we're able to get some movement in that direction to just begin to see like, what, what's it gonna take for us to be able to trade with one another um, in a in a reliable, in a safe, um, and in a, a mutually beneficial way. Like, dude, I would love to be able to just go to a store and buy some. Like, I'm 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 kind of sword, so I'd love to try everything from Oregon and California and all these different states. That's not necessarily what's going to work in terms of economies of scale for this sort of stuff. Uh, you need to have these net exporter states. Um, being able to transport cannabis across the country to other jurisdictions that are just getting started or that sort of thing. Um, I think it's something to keep in mind, you know, though for the long, long run for, for states where cannabis isn't, where you've got to go to pretty extreme lengths to grow cannabis. Yeah. Like yeah. gotta be indoors and in these like really expensive facilities that use tons of energy and tons of inputs. Uh, yeah. Like in the long run, probably not going to be the way stuff's going to work out except for maybe like you know that exquisite local um uh quality flower products um but you know i think we said last time we talked about it it's like this is all going to change in the long run it's going to be a, a continuous interesting ride and folks are going to need to be able to adapt and to uh but but you can already see like some of the writing on the wall with regards to what climates are good for growing cannabis? Um, what are what are the taxation regimes going to be like between states? Like we've got a thirty seven percent excise tax collected at the point of sale. Our legislators aren't going to want to give that up. But then again, like nobody's going to be wanting to um, nobody's going to be wanting to see that kind of a tax placed on products brought into the state. Right. So um, what are they going to do for stuff exported out of the state? Like that's, that's not going to be taxed at that same rate. So there's lots of, there's lots of things that need to be figured out. And that's why I think doing something that's more incremental and iterative where states can individually figure those things out with one another, um, I think might be a, a smarter approach. Absolutely. Yeah. I like the idea of, uh, this, this idea you're talking about of net exporter states. I like the idea of, uh, you know, Washington, California and other states being known for exporting cannabis, just like Florida is known for oranges and fucking 
Pennsylvania, I think, is known for the place that has Hershey. Hershey's or I don't know. I I I was really digging. I was really reaching for that second one because I was just trying to think of what other states were known for. I was like, fuck. Well, Washington's known for its apples, right? There you go. There you go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was yeah, gonna say California, uh, you know, with their wine, but I already use California with cannabis. So I was like, oh. Yeah. But yeah, they are definitely known for their cannabis, the Emerald Triangle. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. So I mean. I think the heart of today's conversation, what we came away with, if I could try to recap it and, you know, if we want to put a finer point on it or whatever we, we can. Um, but I think it's like, it's good that we're having this conversation. It's good to be mindful of it, especially the the elements of social equity, which um, I didn't get to to that exactly. So I might quickly address that. I've got an idea of how with, this fast and loose approach that I'm sort of proposing that we may still be able to address social equity. I want to put, throw my idea out there with regard to that. But before we get to that, just to kind of quickly recap where we've gone, where we've been, uh, it's like we're, we're talking about like maybe it's a little bit too early to have this conversation because of the the landscapes and the variables, uh, you know, it's not that it's not a good conversation to have. It's just that apples and oranges are hard to compare sometimes. Right. And until we have a more, uh, appropriate comparison and we're getting there with some, I mean, you know, you, like you said earlier, you, you can almost draw some comparisons to Illinois and, and some states that are operating in the East, which if you look in those states, you'll see similar operators, right? So it's like, hmm, what's going on there? It's interesting coincidence. But uh, uh, so we, have, we agree that it's hard to compare. There's a lot going on. Keep an eye on it. And, uh, and ultimately, though, we'd like to, to right the wrongs of, we'd, we'd like to at least as we move forward, keep in mind how we can continue to right the wrongs of the drug war. I think that's a, a great goal to keep in mind. And like you said earlier, super important. So let's really quick visit my goal. Cause I'm glad I thought of it. I didn't, I said, I'd say it and I almost didn't. Um, it's a, it's a rough idea, but the rough idea is first of all, you create a criteria for social equity candidates. And in Illinois, there's a criteria. I know it's different in some states. And and, and look, I'm not, I am, I don't have an answer. I don't have a magical formula I can give you for what that should be. Um, and in fact, it's a very intriguing conversation. We had somebody on one time, but that's a whole other very nuanced conversation. What is a social equity candidate, right? Who, what makes a social, it, that's a, that's actually a really tough conversation, but Let's, let's start with agreeing on what that is. And maybe that can be, that doesn't have to be set in stone. That could be something that can be developed over time and changed and modified, but start with defining on what that is. And then people that don't fit that criteria, AKA non-social equity candidates or license holders, they pay a social equity license fee, which goes into a fund, which helps to finance social equity startups because if we want social equity candidates in the market i look like i said earlier like i think like the approach of limiting licenses is to inflate the value in other words kind of give them get get more and it makes sense but it's like maybe we could do that by creating a fund you know and and then and properly 
capitalize because that's the thing it's like not only is it tough for people to like we said the cost of getting into the business in and of itself is it's something that you got to consider before you actually do it but then the license fees you know add to that so um if there was a way to properly give these people capital and give these people access to capital i think that's 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 the way to go. And like I say, it's like that mixture of the fast and loose and still regulated, but keeping in mind in the forefront of what's the goal, ending the war on drugs. And with that, we need to right the wrongs of, of what those policies caused, you know? Absolutely. And um, uh, I, I think there's lots of ways to, to generate that capital. Um, yeah. Uh, many jurisdictions from what I've seen are um, taking that tax money that is collected from the sales um, or however the tax structure is set up in each jurisdiction. And they're dedicating some percentage of that, moving that back into uh, the social equity process. Nice. Um, um, another piece there though, also, which I think is, is helpful and, and useful to mention is that while we're talking about social equity within the cannabis sector and trying to increase the diversity of ownership, um, it's not just within the cannabis sector that the impacts of the drug war have been felt. And so it's really admirable that uh, many new jurisdictions that are coming online are looking at overall community reinvestment models and trying to put forward some sort of way of oftentimes moving that excise tax money that's collected back into the communities that have been harmed, um, uh, the families that have been harmed um, uh, uh, through those sorts of like a, a process of reparations. And so um, I don't think we should shy away from that at all. It's difficult, right? Like it's, it's difficult simply for the subject matter, but it's difficult like actually developing programs like that um, that are yeah. going to be fair that are going to be equitable, that are going to reach those goals. Um, it's difficult, like you were saying, to figure out what the criteria are around the social equity applicants. And just to put it in there, because I haven't seen a lot of jurisdictions dealing with this quite yet, but it's one thing to be awarded a social equity license. Um, but depending on your jurisdiction, you can sell your license and well, how then does that work? Like, can <laughs> yeah, no, that's something like, I've been wondering about with these licenses because they've it's basically uh, pretty all but confirmed to be an open air market on these licenses. Like, some of these people have spent so much money either getting ready for court or being in court that they don't have enough money to frankly operate. You know, especially if they fit what you might consider to be the true definition of social equity candidate. And by that, I mean somebody who might not be as well capitalized to sustain these time periods of no business, you know, yep. and they, they need to have be able to have an exit strategy like everybody else, too. Right. Like you need to be able to recoup um, all of the time and effort and gain that um, yeah. the profit from those licenses. So um, but I know some jurisdictions, they don't allow the sale or transfer of licenses. And um, it's a complicated piece. Like it's just an additional yeah. complicated piece on top of a, a already a real challenging thing. So, but I feel like that's a, that's another one. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's another one for sure. Hey, I've got one last question for you that is admittedly a little bit unrelated to most of the topics at hand, but I think it relates to social equity. So I, I just want to hear what you think, especially you're in a different state and we've brought up the idea that arrests continue, right? Uh, even in, in jurisdictions that have, quote, legalized cannabis, which makes the question, I, I say cannabis, I say, I say, I don't know why I just sounded like I was, uh, what is that? Uh, Michael, sorry, I'm just, I'm all over the place. It's been a long day. I'm not even going to try to be comedic about this. I think that um, it's, you can't argue that cannabis has been legalized if arrests, can, uh, cannabis arrests and prosecution related to cannabis, petty cannabis offenses, nonviolent offenses continue. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that people should be able to drive high and just do whatever the fuck they want while they're high, walk down the road smoking weed. You know, like I don't think people should be able to drink and drive or walk down the road drinking, right? I still believe that there should be some uh, reasonable laws in place to keep people, uh, you, you know, to, to, to curb dangerous behavior, if you will. Um, but one thing that's remained constant across all states is the idea of a possession limit, a cultivation limit. Um, and look, there's a, there's a limit on uh, homebrew, and, and homebrew didn't come around directly after prohibition either. So um, I want to be frank. I want to be completely you know, upfront about that. But homebrew, we have done a little bit of research into it. In some states, you can have up to 100 gallons per adult, which is, oh, I can't remember the metric right now, but it's its a lot of alcohol. It's, it's more than, um, I would say, I don't mean to be judgmental, but I would say it's more than you should consume a year. Um, let me just find the number really quick because that sounded super judgmental. But uh, it, it's a lot of alcohol. And on top of that, these limits in some states, it's not in all states, in some states, it can get even more vague and it's a hundred gallons per spirit, which is actually an interesting idea. Let's see that applied to cannabis cultivation, a, a, a limit per strain instead of just plant limits, right? Um, here's the uh, language though. So that, so home brewing limits in the U.S. seem to be capped at 200 gallons a year at two adults per household in most states. That's roughly 355 six packs of beer which i'm sorry at 355 if you drink that a year you're not a bad person i don't know if i get anywhere close to that i i, I have no idea i wanted to apologize if i made it if i cast any judgment when i was trying to be funny but you know what do you what do you think about that idea the idea that if we want to end the drug war then Maybe we should end the drug war. We should kind of do away with these possession limits. Like, why does it matter how much you have? Why, again, if you're growing and you're selling it to people and you're not subject to regulations, I've got a problem with that. I think you should have a license and you should be subject to consumer safety standards. So I'm not advocating for people to just go willy nilly. Although I will say that happens at farmers markets just about every every weekend, right? People grow their own tomatoes and share them. And there's not any real concern about the, the quality of the, what we're sharing with each other. Very, very low regulation there is the point I'm trying to make. 
Um, what do you think about limits, man? Because the limits are the continuation of the drug war, in my opinion. Well, um, I, I think it's, a, it's again, kind of a, a complicated one. Sure. Um, and, um, but I, I think maybe it's instructive to see, uh, to look at a few examples, um, just looking at home growth in particular. Um, so Colorado um, did legalize home growth. Um, and initially, the limit that they had was, um, I think on the order of 99 plants per household. And so they toned that down several years later, um, precisely because what they were seeing is that um, uh, people were, were using that situation to to grow and then to um, export out the state. Um, and so they toned that down. I, I forget, I think it's, as I recall, and I'm, I'm probably wrong on the number here, but I think it's back down to like 13 plants yeah. or something like that um, per household or something like that. Uh, and subsequently, my understanding is they, they haven't really seen any issues around that piece. Let's see. Um, really, well, hold, I don't hold, want. Hold, 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 okay, hold, go, hold, ahead. Hold. go ahead. I just want to contrast with um, uh, another one of the the kind of uh, uh, black marks against uh, uh, Washington State is that we did not legalize home growing of cannabis, and we have had advocates pushing for that in a very reasonable way, session after session here, and it just can't get over the finish line it seems and that seems kind of at the other end of the spectrum as definitely indicating a very stigmatizing view on cannabis that we can't be trusted as individuals to grow a plant for our own personal use just like we would grow tomatoes Right. And um, so while I think like there's there's some middle ground there, right? Like there's some middle ground where it's like, okay, well, uh, oftentimes the way that's cut with uh, home grow is that you can't sell it, right? Like if you're going to be selling, then you need to have a permit or a license or an endorsement or something like that. Yeah. Um, so that there can be some oversight over that process, I guess, and probably the state can get their cut. Um, And so, but underneath that, it's like, well, we're doing a disservice in Washington state to not only the plant, but to the cannabis sector in the long run, because what better way for people to get to know the plant and to develop the skills and future generations to grow the plant and to have that relationship and that rapport with the plant than to be able to grow it yourself and not have it not be a issue, right? Like I think it does continue the stigmatization of the plant and of the people who consume it for us to, to take that kind of prohibitionist approach and say, Oh no, well, sorry, we're still just not, 
we're not sure you can be trusted with that. It's like, well, no, uh, I don't think that's right, personally. Yeah, it's it's an interesting line that that your that your state's drawn, and that many other states have drawn it. I mean, we've drawn it at an interesting place where only medical cannabis patients can cultivate. Meanwhile, uh, adult use you know, adults that are over 21, uh, cannot cultivate. Um, I just, one of the things, uh, I, uh, I'm glad you finished your point, um, because I didn't know that Washington didn't legalize home cultivation. That's, that's I, today I learned, um, to be, to be fair, like, uh, we do have like the fledgling kind of medical system. And so, authorized patients are oh, okay to, to grow their own um, but they're subject to arrest and confiscation of their plants here um, in, in ways that they're not protected it's an affirmative defense state in that regard so whoa still definite Weird. problems on that side too anyhow yeah. but yeah that's that's the extent of it yeah, that's weird. And just to contrast, one of the things I think Illinois did correct with their laws that they made it so that all look, I don't think it's correct that all adults, I think all, let me put it this way. I think all adults should be able to cultivate cannabis, but I think one of the things we did correct with our medical cannabis cultivation law, in other words, the the right to grow your own, if you're a medical cannabis patient is that as long as you own the property, there's nothing preventing you from growing cannabis at home. Now, there are some pretty strict rules in, in terms of you can't grow it outside. I think that's pretty crazy. I think it literally says it's like just the way the law is written. It, it makes it clear that you cannot grow outdoors. So for folks, I know a lot of folks, I see it online all the time that are doing it. Be careful. Um, that's technically in violation of your of, of the law and could result in the removal of your cultivation privileges, which is in the law as well. I don't know what that means. Cause like, how are they going to distinguish? Are they going to give you a new card that says you can't grow? Like how, what are, what are they going to do? But uh, anyways, they might take away your card. They might punish you. But anyways, um, the, the thing that we did well was that we, if you own the property, you're good to go. Um, it also gave some assurance to landlords that they could regulate the the cultivation of cannabis on their properties, which, I'm not saying I completely agree with, but I also think that if you own your property, that if you don't, if you want to have some rules, I don't think that's unfair to, to be able to, to do that. Um, the last thing that we did, which is huge, that we cannot, folks, we cannot allow home grow for all if we don't also include this language. We are what's known as a keep what you grow state. We actually do not have a possession limit at home. Um, according to some members of Illinois Normal, uh, specifically Kelvin McCabe, he told me that from from the way he understands the law and the way they wrote it, everything that exceeds 30 grams must be uh, secured in the, the household. And I, what exactly secured means, uh, play it safe, people. Put it in a safe. Make sure that your children or nobody that shouldn't get it can get it. That's the way I'd say to comply with the law. But the idea is that you can keep what you grow. And that's a very progressive law, in my opinion. And I think that that's where we need to get because even though we're still bound by a plant limit, which is arguably, I mean, it's arbitrary because you grow five plants and you're okay. But the moment you grow six, that's in felony, felony territory. 
felony territory. Like, where's the compassion, you know? Um, and I'm not saying we've seen it play out that way, but that's the way the law is written. So, you know, it's yet to yet to play out in court that way. But from what I know, um, but but our cultivation laws are, are good in some aspects. But back to your point about um, Colorado, it's interesting to me because I've heard I, I heard similar things that, that that's why they uh, limited cultivation. I did not know that it was 99 plants per house. Holy fuck. That would have been that's that's I can see why they. Oh, okay. I, on one hand, I say I can see why they changed it. On the other hand, it's like you can't, it, it's almost like you can't say, like, well, people are exporting it, so we got to cut it down. It's like, well, why are people exporting it? Is it because every state surrounding us is illegal? Like, again, prohibition is causing a problem that it claims to solve. You, you know what I mean? Uh, prohibition is causing the export of cannabis if people had no reason to export cannabis well fuck they wouldn't export you know what i mean like it wouldn't be a viable solution to buy a bunch of houses like people were doing and converting them into basically a commercial grow did you see that shit how they were yeah yeah it was crazy good times (laughs) (laughs) yeah um anyways though what i mean you you more or less agree with what I'm saying though with regard to like you know it's like prohibition is creating the demand and uh... oh well prohibition is uh, the idea that you can uh, make people not want to want cannabis right and, right um, I, I'm sorry that you know abstinence only models of uh prevention don't really reckon with the complexity of people and our um our inherent inalienable freedoms and and rights and you get what i'm saying like the people around like in nebraska for example they're not they would have no reason to go to colorado if there were places to obtain cannabis in nebraska like you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. yeah. Like it, it, it's like, yeah, we absolutely. Are, <laughs> we're I mean, we have, uh, it. Uh, all you have to do is look at the, uh, the sales data for retail establishments that are close to the borders of the states true. where prohibition exists, like right next door to us is good old Idaho. And, uh, some of our retail operations in, in Spokane are, are doing really, really well. Oh yeah. Um, We've got Iowa and Indiana, which are just two pleasant states that that I, I thank you actually. I mean that sounded sarcastic, Iowa people from Iowa and Indiana, but thank you. You've been giving us a lot of tax dollars. <laughs> yep. yep, yeah, it's a, it's, a, you know, I I feel like eventually you know, everyone will will come around, and, uh, and if nothing else, you know, sadly sometimes we have to wait for. Um, people who are in positions of power to no longer be around to be obstructionist. Um, but I think our culture is in general, obviously moving in the right direction with regards to things. And I think we should all be proud for um, the efforts that um, we as cannabis advocates and, um, and lovers are, are doing to, uh, to shift that relationship with the plant and uh, um, just take heart. Um, again, like I, 
I, when I would have asked me 20 years ago, I, I would not have thought that I would have been seeing this kind of progress in my lifetime with regards to cannabis. It just never, uh, never seemed that we were heading in that way. And so I'm just glad to, to be around, to be participating, to, to help push for that part. Hell yeah, man. Well said. Well said. You definitely got to recognize the progress. Um, we're living in a crazy time. I mean, I'm sitting here dabbing on this space pin that I should that's what I should have asked. Uh, God damn, that's a good question. I'll have to reach back out. We, we had Tommy Chong on the podcast once and I asked him just like, you know, he was growing up towards like, like he was in like the sixties and the seventies. And now he was in his twenties and the sixties and seventies, I think. And I am in my twenties and the 2020s. And I'm like, what, what was it like? Like, you know, you're alive now and compared to then. And I should have asked him, like, could you ever have imagined a dab pen? Like, cause you know, they, I, smoking was a chore back in the day. You had to hide it. And it was, it was tough. These things make it, you can fucking do it during a meeting. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it has, we have come a long way. We've come a long way for sure. Yeah. But even the pot, the, the cannabis stores, you know, I, I, that's something maybe you never would have imagined you'd see. Right. So it's, it's, I'm, I still take great joy walking into a store and just being completely overwhelmed with the diversity of products and how much uh, love and care has gone into most of those products. uh, And uh, the fact that I, I just can't, uh, there's no way I'll have enough time and, and energy to, to try all of the, the different wonderful cultivars and strains that are, are being developed and continue to be developed and evolved. Um, it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. Well, there's not, you know, unfortunately, there's not a lot to, to speak about with regard to product selection here in Illinois. But what I will tell you is that when you go to a dispensary, and I think you could probably relate because I've gone to dispensaries in many states and the, the experience is, is it's universal. Um, you know, the product may not always be good, but this is always universal. The people in that shop, they're going to be memorable. They're going to be unique. They're going to be fun. Um, they're always cool people in a, in a cannabis shop. And it's, it's just about, going out and seeing people that you never would have imagined, like the the craziest thing. And I feel bad for having this thought, but I always, I want to make sure to vocalize it because I'm trying to normalize cannabis. Sometimes I see people in the shop that I wouldn't expect to see in the shop. Now, what does that mean? That's why I feel bad for saying that. What does that mean? Why do I, as a cannabis user, have a stigma? Like you should, it's not that you shouldn't be in here, but I wouldn't have expected you to be in here. And why do I even have that thought? Right? So yeah. Well, it's uh, um, I, I think it's probably a thought that oftentimes people may be pleasantly surprised by. It's like, well, here's a here's a soccer mom who's dealing with some stress. Here's yeah. uh, an older person who's using it for for health and wellness. Um, I think we've uh, we we touched on this in a, last time we talked too, where it's like. Um, I agree. All of our, our cannabis shops these days are, are awesome places and stuff, but I think they cater to a particular segment of the population. And I think that there are many more um, uh, cannabis is cannabis is can be good for everybody. 
right? Like cannabis is for everybody. It's our, again, like it's a, it's a natural plant. It's been with us for thousands and thousands of years. And, um, it's, a it's important to our species. So, um, it's great that we're, we're turning the ship around slowly, but surely and, uh, heading in the right direction with it all. Yeah. Greg, uh, to close where remind us where we can find, uh, canna observer online. Canna observe. Did I say observer? It's cannabis.observer on the website. And, uh, yeah, if you just look up cannabis observer, we're going to be, um, we're going to be the top thing you'll find there. And, uh, it's can observe C A N N O B S E R V on social. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Well, yeah. We'll have that in the podcast description. Last question for you. Is there any way besides following you on social media that our audience can support you? Well, um, we've got a, a kind of unconventional, um, funding model where we want to, our, our intention is to do such good quality work, work that folks want to voluntarily support us with donations or recurring monthly sponsorships. But I also want to put it out there that we have developed a model that we believe is portable to other jurisdictions, um, not only for cannabis, but for other policy verticals, but certainly want to focus mainly on cannabis. And so I would love to, I think there should be a cannabis observer in Illinois. I think there should be a cannabis observer in, in all of the states. I think there should be one in Washington, DC. That's helping us to stay um, well-informed about the way that these policies and these laws and rules are being created. And so we all can uh, be well-informed and engaged in the process of creating these laws and rules because we're making all of this up in these different jurisdictions as we go along. And um, it's important that the people who have that love for the plant and who understand the plant are there in the room and at the table helping these legislators, these regulators who don't necessarily, usually don't have that kind of relationship and understanding of the complexity of the plant, of the history of the plant and of what we can do with it all. So um, please reach out to me and to, uh, if you are interested in being, you have that kind of journalism slash advocacy slash policy wonk kind of intersection of, uh, of interests, reach out to us. Let's start a conversation about that. Hell yeah. I already know a few of our fans might be reaching out to you that are, they get, they get really into policy much more than, much more than I do uh, actually, you know, so they're, they're people that I defer to sometimes when we're doing little uh, independent spots. So thanks for throwing that out there. I'm all for getting more people's uh, coverage, you know, giving people an opportunity to cover these things, especially folks that are already paying attention to it all. Like, Here's your opportunity. So folks, uh, we hope that you not only found a value in this conversation, but maybe you've got a, something to look forward to, something to apply for and set your mind towards. Folks, it's Cole from the Chillinois Podcast. Today I was joined by Greg Foster from Cannabis Observer. Once again, we'll have the links for uh, uh, everything Cannabis Observer in the podcast description. And Greg, we're going to have you back on the show because uh, I always have a good time talking with you. So, Likewise. Thank you so much for the opportunity and thank you all for the work that you're doing. For sure. All right. Chillinois till next time.